Why does Eden Baptist Church encourage formal membership? Pragmatically speaking, is church membership really useful to the health of a local church? Biblically speaking, is it necessary? And even if it is necessary, is it not optional? In the opinion of some, church membership should go the way of the woman's corset, an undergarment designed to unnaturally restrict the body, causing universal discomfort and ill health. And we all say good riddance. Our Western way of thinking certainly encourages us to similarly resist the inherent restrictions of church membership, indeed even possibly to call them unhealthy. David Wells describes what he calls expressive individualism in these words, and they're profound and helpful to us to understand who we are. He says that, It is driven, we are driven, by a deep sense of entitlement to being left alone. To live in a way that is emancipated from the demands and the expectations of others. To being able to fashion its own life in the way it wants to. To being able to develop its own values and beliefs in its own way to resist all authority. To be free in these ways, many have come to think, is indispensable to being a true individual. Such thinking really leeches into the minds of Christians who are quick to equate the priesthood of the believer with the infallibility of the individual. And freedom in Christ with autonomous self-determination. I was thinking of that milieu, that background. It doesn't exactly predispose us to embrace the commitment and to accept the restrictions of church membership. But of course, having said that, church membership is not a good idea simply because it swims against the stream of Western individualism. Indeed, some Christians would offer that church membership is unbiblical, And it is really unhealthy. One Christian writer says this, Formal church membership is a bondage that limits growth and freedom in Christ. It is a divisive teaching that encourages a judgmental attitude among those who, the writer goes on to say, encourage this worldly practice. Which he says detracts from the gospel by adding to it. Thus it denigrates the gospel. It subtracts from it by adding something to it that is not necessary. Now most church membership detractors are not quite so caustic and bitter in their denunciation. Trendier, emergent type churches tend to applaud high commitment congregations. Yet they quite consistently scoff at the terminology of church membership been kind of listening into this conversation and I pick up on it in many different angles from many different voices. We've got a better way now. Listen to three prominent U.S. pastors asked to share their views on church membership in a national publication. And they're asked to do so because they're kind of at the cutting edge of what churches are doing today. Notice what they say. 
In the context of church membership, we no longer see joining the membership as an institutional obligation. We've shifted to a kingdom stockholder paradigm, encouraging people to invest deeply in the things that really matter to God. Somehow thinking that church membership is outside of that idea, really mattering to God. But kingdom stockholder. Notice these words in red. The traditional language of church membership, says another, for our community, that is for their church, is pretty much obsolete. I believe membership, as it has been practiced in recent years, is inadequate for our present cultural setting and mission. Worse, it may also be detrimental to church health at Mosaic, the name of the church. You can't join the church as a member of an institution. You can only choose to partner with Mosaic as a part of the movement. The process is described as coming on staff rather than becoming a member. So apparently, if you would come to this church and say, I would like to become a member, they would say, I'm sorry, you cannot do that. But you can come on staff, which might probably generate a few other conversations of confusion. But you see his point. Another pastor admits that his church once avoided the concept of membership, but now emphasizes it for this reason. Our commitment-averse culture is craving a call to commitment. But he adds this, we don't call it membership. That sounds like a country club. We call it partnership. We invite people to partner together. Now keep these themes in mind. We'll return to them. But at this point, let me just say, these representative voices quoted in this national publication because they lead cutting-edge, numerically successful churches... They each dismiss the concept of church membership in order as coldly institutional, embarrassingly outdated, and even elitist. You become a member of a local church, it's like joining a posh country club. You think you're somebody special. That's sort of the idea, how they see church membership. Now, over the next several weeks, I'd like us to consider the topic of church membership in Scripture. And today, in a very preliminary way, I'd like us to consider why we use the phrase church membership, and I'll give this to you up front, why I think we should continue to use the phrase church membership, and what is at stake. Now we'll qualify this, and it will be in one sense one long sermon over a number of weeks that all holds together, so don't draw too many conclusions just off of today, but let's get the conversation started. And I can't think really of a better place to start this discussion, to look at what the Bible says, than 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I invite you there. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. What I'd like us to do is just kind of soak in this chapter for a while. So let's set the concept of church membership aside. We've gotten a little bit of background of the debate Some saying it's unbiblical, it's unhealthy. Others just saying it's outdated and needs to be uh, put on the trash heap. Uh, We'll move on to other ideas. But setting that all aside, let's just saturate ourselves in 1 Corinthians 12, in its language, in its concept. It's not a chapter about church membership. But there are implicit ideas here that I think directly affect the conversation. 
So let's remember as we go into 1 Corinthians 12 that Paul is writing to a deeply divided church. These believers have chaotic worship services in which those with the gift of tongues particularly express themselves in disruptive ways and they take pride in this gift of the Spirit to be able to speak in these languages that are unknown, unstudied, but apparently even, as I would understand, uh, tongues unknown within the congregation other than through the Spirit's miraculous enablement of interpretation. So Paul is addressing now various questions that this Corinthian church sends to him. There are problems in worship, and he's beginning to deal with those problems now head on. Again, this chapter does not directly address church membership, but let's think about its concept of the church. It provides us with substantial, implicit support for the concept. Why church membership? Verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, these are notoriously difficult verses to interpret. Let me give you just what I've come to a conclusion at this point, and it's that Paul is saying something like this. When you were pagan unbelievers, you were spiritually ignorant. You had no capacity to think anything other than that a crucified criminal like Jesus was accursed. It's the only capacity you had. But now, through the saving work of the Holy Spirit of God, you can say, Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. He is the ruler over every aspect of our lives. You lived in ignorance. You now have the knowledge of God that Jesus is Lord. Everything Paul says by way of instruction will make sense only if Jesus is Lord of all. So Paul now turns to the point at hand. Verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. That really answers their whole problem right there. It's the Lord who gives the gifts. Think about it. You're very proud about certain gifts and using them as prominent and putting down others who have also received gifts from the Spirit of God. There's a variety of gifts. He speaks here of the diversity of the Spirit's work as the Spirit promotes the Lordship of Jesus in everything that the church does. Under this banner, Jesus is Lord. The Holy Spirit gives these gifts and it's a diversity of gifts. Verse 7 is a key verse. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Paul is going to work out that thought in verses 8 through 11. For the common good, he will work out in verses 12 and following. So in verse 7, every true believer in the church is given spiritual gifts which manifest the presence of the Holy Spirit in the assembly. 
They make it clear that this is a spirit-baptized assembly, and they benefit the entire body of believers. At least that is what they are given to do. So as one commentator puts it, under the lordship of Jesus, these gifts are not intended for individual advantage, for self-affirmation, for self-fulfillment, for individual status, for self-glorification. Not at all but for the building up of the body. So manifesting the Spirit of God in these gifts, we see he develops this theme at verse 8. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability of distinguishing between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as He wills. We cannot take the time to think about the meaning of these gifts, nor their place in salvation history. Here we must limit our focus to verse 11, which reiterates the thesis of verse 7, that there is one Spirit and there is a diversity of gifts parceled out to the believers. Now, in verse 12, we're looking at the second half of verse 7, for the common good. Verse 12, as Paul fleshes that out, he starts with this. Verse 12, for just as the body is one... And has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. With Christ, I think, is shorthand for the body of Christ. He's probably withholding that idea for a very specific reason, for a teaching purpose, as he's going to get to that and sort of end with that idea. But I think it's talking about the body of Christ. Gordon Fee writes on this, collectively, in their common relationship to Christ, through the Spirit, they are His one body. Now verse 13, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and were all made to drink of one Spirit. I think what Paul is saying here, and by the way, we could spend easily weeks on this verse alone. It is filled with interpretive difficulties and and also with rich theological truth. We're going to have to skim over it fairly quickly, but I think he is saying that when you repented and trusted Jesus' death to pay the penalty of your sin, believing that Jesus rose from the dead, the reigning Christ poured out His Spirit upon you. There's six other uses of this phrase, baptized with, in, by the Spirit, however you translate it. All of them have some reference back to John the Baptist's prophecy that Jesus would pour out His Spirit, and it seems then to be that this is a reference to that work of Christ that took place initially at Pentecost. For in one Spirit you were all baptized into one body. Now, of course, water baptism is a symbol, is an image of what has taken place spiritually. As we see below, drinking of the one Spirit, I think, could perhaps be imaged in the Lord's table. But I don't think he's dealing here with these ordinances of physical water baptism and taking of the Lord's Supper when he speaks of baptism and drinking. 
They are symbols of what God has done to regenerate the individual. In that cleansing act, when we come to embrace what Christ has done for salvation, the Spirit washes your soul clean of sin, of the status of sin. He takes up residence within, and the Spirit unites you to the body of Christ. It is very much wrong-headed to read this verse to say, in light of the context, that this is something that happens after one is saved. That the Spirit of God baptizes us sometime later. It's obvious that there is one Spirit and one body, and all who are brought into that body have been baptized by the Spirit, or in the Spirit would be better to put it. I think it's Jesus who does the baptizing in the Spirit in these watery terms. Now, it makes no difference if you're Jew or Gentile. It makes no difference if you're slave or free, rich or poor, male or female, young or old, if you grew up in a Christian environment or if you grew up in a godless environment. When you trust Christ as Savior, the Spirit cleanses you and unites you to the body, the Spirit-baptized followers of Christ. If you have not trusted Jesus as your Savior... You need to know that the only way in which you can escape the judgment of God is to come to place your faith and your trust in Him so that He does a work you cannot do. He baptizes you in His Spirit to cleanse you from sin. That's what must happen. We've been called through images this week of horrible suffering in Haiti. To heed again the words of Jesus, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish, and much, much worse. We will perish forever apart from the saving work of Jesus in our lives. Have you been baptized by the Spirit? Said another way, have you embraced the message of salvation in Christ? Trust Him today. This is the only escape. This week's images remind us that sin is everywhere and there is pending judgment for all apart from Christ. And when you do that, when you place your confidence in Christ alone for salvation, you drink of the Spirit of God. Remember Jesus' words, John chapter 7, out of your inner being will flow rivers of water. That is, you will drink of the Spirit of God such that you will never thirst again. The emptiness of soul in the state in which you were born that was there from birth will be quenched by the Spirit of God. There will be a constant desire to continue to taste and to continue to enjoy, but never will you thirst again. Now in this one body of those who have been regenerated, there is great diversity And that's the point, verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. That's a crucial theme. The sovereign Lord 
purposefully places believers in the church, and he does so very wisely. Verse 19, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So the Corinthian church, Eden Baptist church, needs to recognize the unity of the body through the work of the Spirit and also the diversity of the body through the sovereign will of God as He places members within the assembly. They are united in their diverse function within that one body. Verse 21, he goes on, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. So he looked at the other side of it. A member cannot say, because I'm not something special, I don't count. But on the other hand, one that seems to be more prominent, such as the eye, cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with more modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. The point is fairly clear. We spend time covering our private parts. We spend time on that to everybody's thanksgiving. We do. That's what we've done this morning. We've dressed and we've come. We've spent time even to cover the parts that are unpresentable with modesty. And we doctor our weakest features. We don't cut them off. There's been times, I'm sure all of us, when we look in the mirror, we see some parts we think would probably be better without. But we know that's not the case, is it? We could cut our nose off, but it really wouldn't be pretty. We need it. I mean, it's nothing more than a hood, an event. But you got to have it. As ugly as mine is. You all have beautiful ones, but mine's ugly. you got to have it. You can't cut your nose off. You need every single part, don't you? But God, verse 24b, has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Even this hood, this beak that we have sitting out there in front that really doesn't accomplish a lot, it doesn't seem to us, the head can't say, I don't need you anymore. In fact, the head may lead us to really doctor it and take care of it. That's the way the church is. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, verse 25, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. It's the middle of the night. You're trying to keep the lights out. You want nobody to wake up. You're up for some reason, and you stub your toe big time. You know that feeling, some of you, and your whole body responds, doesn't it? Your face is all screwed up, and you're hopping on the good foot, and you're just, everything inside, your, your gut has this little sick feeling to it, and you're sure you're never going to recover, and all of your body is pitting that toe. All works together, it all sympathizes together. The face isn't up there going, hey foot, that's your problem, I'm just fine up here, deal with it. No, your face is all screwed up and it it hurts. The whole body hurts for the one toe. And the other is the same thing. The honor that goes through all. Imagine you're Carnegie Hall and you hear the greatest tenor on the planet sing an entire concert. 
And afterward, you're privileged to meet him. You don't go up to the man, grab a hold of either side of his mouth, open it up, and yell inside his throat, Great voice! (laughs) You just look at his face, and to his whole being, you say, Wonderful voice! And his face doesn't get mad at his voice. His knee isn't rejecting this compliment and angry at the larynx or something like that. It's it's ridiculous. His whole body rejoices with someone who has complimented his voice. So it is with the body of Christ. Now here's the clincher and why I think he withholds the phrase body of Christ in verse 12. Here's the clincher. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. You are the body of Christ and individually you are members in that body. As the body of Christ... We who are members of that body are to rejoice with one another, weep with one another, share our joys and sorrows, exercise undivided concern for one another, partner with one another, build one another up in the faith. You are the body of Christ. Now I want us to just stop and think about this very carefully and focus on it. Paul is writing to the messed up Corinthian church And he says to this local body of believers, you are the body of Christ. And though there's debate in the Greek, I think that's the right way to understand it. You are the body of Christ. One of my professors has put it this way, and it's said so well. It's an insight that not many catch, and I think it's very vital, and I hope it's an aha moment for you as it was for me as I read this. In the New Testament, Characteristically, each local church is not a part of the whole church. I should emphasize the word part. It's not a part of the whole church, but simply the church. The outcropping of the church or the exemplar of the church in any particular place. So also with Paul's language about the body. Paul does not mean that each congregation is a part of the body of Christ or a body of Christ. Each congregation, each church is the body of Christ. Each local church, if I may put it this way, is the exemplification of the church. The people of God in any place are the people of God, the church, not simply a part of the people of God. Eden Baptist Church is not a toe. We're not an elbow. We are the body of Christ. Now, this can be taken in the wrong way, and some people think, yes, our church is the only church on the planet. Not at all. There is the larger body of Christ, but as we look at the local church, it's interesting, and I think this is very insightful, that Paul doesn't say we're simply part of the body of Christ. We are, as a local assembly, the body of Christ, and of course it's local. But let's now begin to bend back to where we began. This is a rich theological metaphor, isn't it? You are the body of Christ, and you are individual members in that body. It illustrates our relationship to one another. It illustrates our relationship to Christ, our head, in a very unique way. We are a body of Christ, indeed the body of Christ. Now there's other metaphors that could be used and are used. 
We are the building of God in which each one of us is a living stone. We are the bride of Christ to whom we are united in a covenant relationship of lifelong fidelity. Other images are used of the church. So we could refer to ourselves as stones of the church. Are you a stone of Eden Baptist Church? Yes, I'm a living stone of Eden Baptist Church. That would be appropriate. We could speak of ourselves as as brides of Christ. We could speak of ourselves as members of the body of Christ. And we do. Now there's two significant points that emerge from 1 Corinthians 12 that I think help us understand the concept of church membership. Acknowledging that that's not the overriding point of 1 Corinthians 12, I think these principles will be clear to us. First of all, this will be clear to everyone who's awake in any way, shape, or form. It's this. If you have been baptized by God's Spirit, you are a member of Christ's body. Fair enough. If you have been baptized by God's Spirit, genuinely born again, you are a member of Christ's body. Those who dismiss the terminology of church membership as institutional, outdated, and elitist, I think are very confused and sadly seem to be dismissive of this very idea that describes our relationship with Christ. They are equating membership in a church to something like membership in a country club. They're missing the point entirely. The problem is that their definition of membership is being drawn or being defined by the world, not by the Word. Remember these three pastors that I quoted earlier. They have chosen to replace the terminology of church membership with these phrases, kingdom stockholder, coming on staff, and partner. And you can go to many other churches, very similar terminology. Let me say, first of all, I rejoice with their belief that commitment to a local church is vital. That is a breath of fresh air after a long season of megachurch anonymity and consumeristic spectatorism. Thank God for the emphasis. Secondly, I am not necessarily saying that you must use the words church member to be biblical. As I said, we could call ourselves brides of Christ or we could call ourselves living stones or something like that. Not saying that church membership is just the phrase itself is somehow magical. But I am saying that these three pastors, these three voices, have gone to the world of business to describe the relationship of the believers in their churches and have perhaps unwittingly chosen then to de-emphasize the most prominent theological metaphor that the New Testament uses to describe our life together. In light of 1 Corinthians 12, do we want to say church membership is old and archaic terminology, we're kingdom stockholders? I'm not comfortable doing that. I think the imagery that we have right here is beautiful imagery. And when we talk about church membership, don't be sucked into this thinking that it's somehow elitist and outdated and unnecessary, we're talking about being body parts of the body of Christ who is our head. Don't dismiss it so quickly. 
It is a glorious and pervasive biblical truth that we are members of this body. This isn't just one image that Paul just happened to draw at one point. Let's think of Romans 12, 4 and 5. Will you recite this with me together? Let's just read it as a body of Christ. Let's think of this theme of the church as His body. Romans 12, we'll not read the references, but just read through the biblical text here together. Let's read. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. We are members one of another. Christ nourishes and cherishes the church because we are members of His body. And this very prominent theme is connected, This, as it's dealing with us, members of the body of Christ, is connected to the theme, Jesus is the head of His church. Let's recite together. God gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body. We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And He is the head of the body, the church, He is the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Let's establish this. When we speak of being members of the body of Christ, it is this imagery that we're drawing upon. We refer to a glorious biblical metaphor. We are members of the body of Christ. Point one, if you have been baptized by God's Spirit, you are a member of Christ's body. This moves to the second idea. If you are a member of Christ's body, you are to function as such in a local church. If you are a member of Christ's body, you are to function as such in a local church. I think this truth fairly oozes from the pores of 1 Corinthians 12. Believers are members of the body of Christ, endowed with spiritual gifts. Why? What did verse 7 say? For the common good. All the members need one another, verses 14 to 24. These individual members comprising the body of Christ are to exercise mutual care for one another, verse 25. So that if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We've got a lot of work to do there. We fail, but we see his purpose. The fact that we are members of the universal body of Christ is put on display in our membership with a local body of believers. That church is the body of Christ. We are members of that body and we display our universal connection to Christ and His church in the specific body of believers. 
Isn't it true that virtually every word in human language can be used with different nuances depending on the context? The word member is one of those words. When I hear member, don't think YMCA. Don't think country club. Think Jesus. His body of which I am a member. Church membership is a formal covenant between a Christian and a specific body of believers to function as the body of Christ in community. Now again, there are many voices that differ with this. One says, my tradition teaches, one pastor, that you are a member of the church when you accept salvation in Jesus Christ. So membership is not about joining a human organization. Rather, membership is being part of the universal church. No one believes that the local church is merely a human organization. At least no one that knows Christ and is biblically oriented. No one believes what she has just said. We don't believe it's just an organization. But notice how here it's an either-or for her. We are members of the universal body of Christ, but that has nothing to do with a local church. This is all there is to it. It's both and. And that's what's missed. Paul pointedly wrote to the Corinthians, and he could look Eden Baptist Church in the eye and say, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. You suffer together, you are honored together, you serve one another together, you pour out your gifts and abilities for the common good, you partner together in the cause of Christ. You are the body of Christ. You, Corinthians, you, Eden Baptist Church, are that body. It is a universal concept, it is also a local concept. So we ask common Christian, Sir, are you a member of the local church? No, I, I, I'm part of the body of Christ. I don't really identify with a, a particular local body. I, in fact, I don't really believe that's biblical. All we ask then, are you weeping with that faithful church on that side street in Port-au-Prince today? Are you tithing your income to that Bible-believing congregation in Groton, Connecticut? Are you rejoicing with the installation of that new pastor in Sydney, Australia? Are you supporting the struggling believers as they go through a great spiritual trial in their congregation, that church in Waco, Texas? Wow, I I said I'm part of the universal body of Christ. I didn't say I was omnipresent. You're not omnipresent. So you're admitting you're restricted to a location. Well, of course, who isn't restricted to a location? In your restriction, you must identify with believers you are committed to weep with and laugh with and pour out your gifts for the common good and honor the shepherds who are within that congregation and on and on it goes. Yes, you are a member of the universal body of Christ. Yes, whenever we connect with other believers, wherever they are throughout the world, there will be a oneness and a unity in our head, Jesus Christ but you're not omnipresent. And when Paul said to the Corinthian church, you are the body of Christ, 
you are members of that body. He meant for them to use their spirit-given gifts to build one another up in the faith. They were members of that local church. As will become increasingly evident, I hope, as this series unfolds, while the New Testament never explicitly says you must join a local church, the responsibilities that it places upon us demand this. Again, I think that will become increasingly evident, but I think we can see it implicitly even here in 1 Corinthians 12. If you obey what God calls you to do as a believer in covenantal community with other believers, you will become a member of the church. Now, maybe the church you're in somewhere else will call it stockholder. I've taken umbrage with that kind of terminology because I think it's going to business rather than to the body of Christ, but okay. There will nonetheless be a particular covenantal relationship with real people that you live around. And if God has placed you in this assembly, we learn from 1 Corinthians 12 that you count. Not in some self-esteem building way, how special I am. But you count in this sense that God has sovereignly chosen to place you in this body. To build it up and to contribute to its unity and its purpose. And it says to us that He then loves you. That you have a purpose here for His glory as a member of His body. He loves you to this extent. He has given you salvation in Christ, poured out His Spirit upon you, and placed you within a body of believers. That's His love to you. Now clearly, this isn't all cozy. It's not sentimental kind of love. We have problems with other believers in our body. Jesus puts us in this church and we'll have to work some of those things out as we grow and as our sin crops its head and as it's rooted out within this community. It's not sentimental love. Oh, isn't that wonderful? We're all in this body and everybody gets along perfectly. No, but it is His sanctification project to put you here or to put you in a local body of believers to identify with them, to serve with them, to mutually weep and laugh and fellowship and advance the gospel of Christ. And may we all labor for the mutual good of God's people then to the glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who has paid the penalty of our sin and incorporated us into His body by His grace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your mercies to us in Christ, for what You have done. And I pray in behalf of those who have heard this truth, I don't know how each one will filter some should not join a church, at least not now. Some should be patient and take time. Some should continue to work forward. Some need to come to know Christ the Savior. But there are some of us who are members of this assembly and are not recognizing the privilege that is ours and the responsibility and the joy of it. And may we not be duped by those who would draw us away from the simplicity of Scripture 
Not drawn away to business. Not drawn away to set aside what is for our good and health. This is our freedom. And I pray that we discern that and grow as members together of this church, this body. Be glorified in this assembly, we pray. Magnify Christ and deepen us in the Word. It is in His name that we pray. Amen.